As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. In this episode of the History Today podcast, we speak to Jesse Childs about an exorcism that took place in Hackney during the 16th century and what it reveals about the Catholic predicament in Elizabethan England. Jesse's article, Beware the Foul Fiend, is one of the main articles in our April issue, which is out now. Also in this issue, Chris Wrigley explains how smoking became an approved symbol of patriotism in the First World War. Marcella Pellegrino Sutcliffe describes Garibaldi's visit to London in 1864. Susanna Lipscomb considers whether fantasy fiction such as Game of Thrones is better than period drama. And Catherine Wanner and Hugh Small delve into the history of Ukraine to explore the country's current turmoil. You can buy the April issue in newsstands, subscribe on our website, or else get it via the History Today app, which is available for iPad, Android, Kindle Fire, and smartphones. With that said, let's get back to this edition of the podcast. Here's Jesse Childs talking to History Today Deputy Editor Charlotte Crow. So, Jesse, it's nice to talk to you today. Before actually focusing on the exorcism itself, I wonder if we can just discuss for a minute or two the wider Catholic experience in England in the 1580s, because we think of the Elizabethan period as a golden age, but in fact there was masses of religious turmoil, wasn't there, at that particular period? Yes, there was, there was. I think Elizabeth is slightly too airbrushed, and um, it it does her no favours, because if you think of uh, the danger and the insecurity of her realm, actually, I think her achievements are, are magnified and, and, and better because of it. But England is at war with Spain at this time. Um, it's a sort of Cold War, but in 1585, Leicester goes off to the Low Countries with his regiment sent by the Queen to fight the Spanish. Um, and, of course, Queen Elizabeth in 1570 was excommunicated by the Pope. And uh, Pope Pius V, uh, he basically said that the Catholic subjects should not obey the Queen. In fact, they uh, would be threatened with anathema. They, too, would be excommunicated um, from the church if, if they uh, continued to obey her. And there were, there were later uh, restrictions on this. Pope Gregory XIII said that actually they could obey her for a little bit until the time was right. But that's, that's, that's really no comfort to the Queen, knowing that when the time is right for the Catholics to rise up and invade and, and uh, rebel from within then uh, they, they would do it and they'd be commanded to do it. So I'm, I, I write about the Vaux family, as they're pronounced, um, and they're fascinating. And what I like about using a family is that 
it, 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 there are various generations. And, of course, it's not the same thing. At the beginning of Elizabeth's reign, the Catholics are, are okay. I mean, it's... They still have to go to Protestant church, but... Let, let me stop you there for a second, then. So what what was the, the population makeup in England in the 1580s, and just to get some idea of the balance in terms of um, the remaining Catholic uh, followers, if you like, after the Protestant sure. Reformation, Henry well, Reformation? It's always impossible to say how many Catholics there are because, of course, Catholics don't advertise their membership. But if you, if you think about... At the end of Mary's reign, everyone's a Catholic. I mean, not everyone, of course, there are, there are Protestants, but the vast majority are Catholics. And at the, at the, in 1603, at the end of Elizabeth's reign, we're probably talking about 1% of the population, maybe 40,000 Catholics. And within that, the recusants, named after the Latin recusare to refuse, the ones who didn't go to church as they were supposed to, probably you know, only, only a few thousand. So, so it, it's a handful. It, it's a small group. But, but as far as how many Catholics were there, it's very hard to say because a lot went to church and uh, made their own provisions with God. They would block their ears, or they, they would not listen to the sermon, or they would go home and have mass later. Or some would just convert on their deathbed. It's very hard to tell how many remained Catholic. But uh, you're right, the 1580s is this sort of crucial time when the word Protestant itself becomes much more acceptable as a term of self-reference. And I think you can say that Elizabeth's reign really is a Protestant country at that stage. And so who were the Vokes family then? They were, they, were, they were a minor aristocratic family from Northamptonshire, um, very benign. Um, the second Lord Vokes had been, had been a lovely poet, but they weren't, they, were, they weren't very prominent. They were just good country, minor aristocracy, um, but very, very Catholic. Um, and actually, uh, Lord Vokes, the third Lord Vokes, who is the sort of patriarch of this story, had Edmund Campion who later became the Jesuit proto-martyr Edmund Campion in his household, who, and he taught the children. Um, and then when Edmund Campion came back in 1580 to launch the Jesuit mission in England, uh, Lord Bortz welcomed him back into his house and harboured him. And uh, this is about he was arrested, he was tried, and he was imprisoned in the fleet. And after that, he was under a form of kind of house arrest in Hackney. Um, and when the, so he was being uh, watched by the Protestant state at the point at which uh, the exorcism took place. He was. He was. He was under surveillance. Um, they had. A, they had a fair idea about him. He was sending men out to Europe with messages about what's going on, to the, what's happening to the priests, the sufferings they were going under, lots of accounts of the torture that some of the priests had been, had been undergoing, and he would send money abroad. Um, so they had their eye on him, definitely. But uh, they, let, they let him have, his, have the rest in Hackney. So he was fairly comfortable. Um, and he did have links with Northamptonshire to people like Lord Burley, who was actually um, pretty gracious and kind to him and tried to help him out. Um, and then Lord Vaux has this son, Henry, who is much more active, much more radical, I, I could say, okay. um, who's a key operative in the, in the Jesuit mission. And actually, just, just before the, the exorcism happens in 1585, the spring of 1585, there's been this meeting in Hoxton, just close to Hackney. Um, and, and they've all been there, and they're trying to figure out what to do, because Parliament has just passed this act. Um, it's very important act um, saying that any priest ordained abroad since 1559 who stays in England is automatically going to be deemed a traitor. He will be executed. So now let's move on to the exorcism itself because um, the account is incredibly dramatic and rather unusual. I came across it first. I was, I was reading a book by Gerard Kilroy and he mentions this manuscript in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. 
And it's a vast two-volume encyclopedia, and it basically holds all these represent memories and propaganda and accounts and stories. And it was bound up, it actually says in, in the preface, it was bound up with a string of secrecy, and then it was put away. And then the Brudenell family and Atticher looked after it for years and years and years. And uh, Kilroy wrote about it in his book. And I, so I went back to this manuscript, and it's got this long account of this exorcism, the exorcism of Sarah Williams. And what I found really fascinating is that we, we've known for a long time about these exorcisms because uh, a Protestant, it would be uh, Samuel Harfnett, who was the chaplain of the Bishop of London, wrote about them in 1603, scathing about them. It was, it was part of his campaign to, to destroy any belief in spirit possession. So we have the Protestant view, um, and we know that the Catholics had this uh, book called the Miracle Book where they would showcase miracles like this, as they called them. Um, and it was very important for them. It was part of the propaganda of, of, of recovering souls for Catholicism. But we didn't have the miracle book. It's lost. Um, but this account was probably included in the miracle book. It's certainly of its kind. And it was written um, by an eyewitness who was there. And it's very graphic. Um, and as you say, it is, it is quite disturbing. I was, I was quite worried in the article that it was um, a little prurient um, because it deals with basically abuse, sexual abuse at one stage. Oh, that's very anachronistic. That's what we would call it, certainly not what they would call it. Um, but I thought it would be dishonest not to include it. So I hope people um, people can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they can because it's it's so fascinating. But um, can you just tell us a little bit about Sarah Williams? Was it Did it tend to be servants who, who were exercised? In this series, there was a series of exorcisms. They basically started in the autumn of 1585 and they went on until the following summer in 1586. There were seven of them, including Sarah, uh, four girls, um, three girls, two men. Only one was not a servant, Richard Maney. All the others were servants. Sarah was only 16. And she'd been in another household in Denham where there, there had also been exorcisms going on. And she'd been exercised there, and then she was, she was sent to Hackney. Um, and, and, and everyone hoped that she got better. But then on New Year's Day 1586, which, which for Catholics is a big day, it's the feast of the circumcision of the Lord, um, her confessor, Robert Dibdale, decided that all was not well with her. This is the quote. Um, and so her exorcism began. And they tied her to a chair, um, and they forced her to drink these horrible potions that seemed to have a lot of oil in it and herbs and wine, and they would hold her head forcibly, and they would, they would thrust relics and the Eucharist and pictures of the Virgin Mary and things like that. Um, and forced her to look at it, and she would turn away her head, and, and apparently she showed all the signs of being possessed because she showed abnormal strength, and she screeched in this unusual manner. Um, and eventually they, they also burned brimstone under her nose, which was the kind of sulfur. But it seems as though, uh, reading through half of it, they also used things like ascotida, which is, I don't know if you've ever smelt it, it's vile. Yes. Um, so, so that was that was burnt under her nose, um, and of course, then she did roar and screech I'm like sure. a bull, and all these things that they said were signs of possession. Um, so it, it, it was a it was a very harrowing harrowing time for her. And, and in the meantime, and it wasn't just one priest; all these reinforcements came in, um, and they're trying to reason with the devil inside her, trying to have a conversation with him, trying to encourage him to come out. And they truly, truly believe that the devil is in there. I think it, there may have been one or two who acted in bad faith. They were certainly accused of fraud later, but I think the vast, vast majority, and this is, this is really important to stress, believed, and she was showing all the signs that these exorcisms, very similar kind of thing, have been happening in Europe 
So what did the act of exorcism and this particular exorcism represent in terms of the wider atmosphere for Catholics in London at the time? And and how was it reacted to by the state? Well, it's quite interesting because um, some people think that it was part of the battle for the hearts and minds. And again, that's a quote from one of the priests, the hearts and minds of Catholics. Uh, a propaganda the effort. Plot, because that happens next. The Babington plot being um, one of the plots to uh, assassinate Queen Elizabeth, and in fact, the plot that led to the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots. I'm not sure about that. Babington was certainly there. In fact, his servant was one of the ones exercised, and he certainly went there with coach loads of people. But that's not that unusual, because it's a small world, and they all did know each other. Um, and the timing doesn't quite work, because the exorcism started well in advance. I don't think it was one great master plan. Um, but the authorities certainly did know about it. They didn't seem that. Lord Burley wasn't that bothered. He sort of laughed it off, really. Um, it's only later with Samuel Harsis and this great campaign to destroy belief in spirit possession entirely that uh, that a great hoo has made about it. Um, and actually, in the aftermath of Babbage, a lot of a lot of them were rounded up and imprisoned. Um, but the exorcism, it didn't, it didn't seem such a big deal to the authorities. But for the Catholics, I find it, what I find very interesting about it is that Catholics quite often in this period are portrayed as though they're sort of just benignly retiring and they're, 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 it's just seigneurial country house Catholicism and the priests are, are in their priest holes and they're quietly saying mass and the, and, the, and the poor old Catholics are just getting on with it as best they can. But actually there's, there's a strand, certainly not all of it, this is, this is a minority, but there's this recusant strand. Um, centered around the Vauxes and, and various friends of theirs who are, who are dynamic and muscular and aggressive and, and trying to do things like this. This was basically for them propaganda. It was to show the power of priests and the power of the Catholic Church. For them, a successful exorcism, and it's so visual, you can see people walking away going, oh my God, did that mm. really happen? How incredible. For them, it, it was all about showcasing the power of the Catholic Church, proving the truth of the Church. Well, thank you very much, Jesse. That's uh, fascinating. And if people want to find out all the gory details themselves, they need to, they need to, they need to uh, read the article in the April issue of History Today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.